So I'd like to welcome you all to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose and today we have a podcast that was triggered by a previous podcast back in January. Uh, on January the 7th I talked a little bit about the brewery which is the brief resolved um, unexplained events and the purpose of that podcast was really to point out the fact that I hadn't been aware that the brewery was the new name for Altis, and that this had been about two or three years in in the making and it had totally passed me by. So even though I'd made efforts to stay abreast of the latest information out there, something had passed me by. And this resonated with one of our listeners who got in touch um, via the podcast and um, uh, that has led to us having a discussion and we decided we would record a podcast about this. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast uh, Dr. Tim Funaki, who is currently an urgent care registrar working in uh, Tauranga in the Bay of Plenty. So kia ora, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Kia ora, Guy. Malolele. Glad to be here. Now, you got in touch, as I say, because you'd listened to the podcast. And I mentioned you're an urgent care registrar, and that's fantastic. We're keen for as many people to train in urgent care as possible, but um, you haven't always been in urgent care. So just t- tell us a little bit about your uh, background in medicine and what, what kind of work you've done prior to becoming an urgent care registrar. Uh, yes, um, sure. In my previous life, or should I say my previous professional life, I used to be a um, paediatric registrar. Uh, and you know you've been doing it for a long time when you can't remember how many years you've been doing it, but I think it's somewhere about 11, 12 years I was a paediatric registrar. Um, I didn't complete the training, but I locumed a lot around both New Zealand and Australia, and I ended up in rural Victoria, um, a place called Shepparton, two hours north of Melbourne, uh, which is important later. Uh, But I was there for about five years working as a a hospital registrar. Uh, Before 2019 came, I had a number of health issues and family issues, and I came back to New Zealand just in time for the first lockdown and thought that would probably be a good time to change careers and get out of the hospital. Uh, so now I'm an urgent care registrar in my second year of training. Um, and that's important because um, your podcast in January was on the breweries. And so, so that grabbed my attention. But also um, this case that I want to discuss really touches base with your previous podcast in December on looking stuff up in your consultation. So it's a combination of kind of messages from both of those podcasts. So fantastic. The the podcast is kind of um, feeding back into itself now, which is which is kind of what I've always hoped is that this would create a, a nice peer feedback kind of loop and, a, and an opportunity to discuss things. And when you mentioned this particular case to me, it, it rang um, very um, many bells with me when I've been looking into those two previous podcasts that you mentioned, um, because it does amaze me how even if you work for 11 years in paediatrics, how some things can just can pass you by. So um, why don't you tell everybody about this case that you had and, and why it prompted you to get in touch having heard the podcast? Sure. I saw a first-time mother in our urgent care clinic. Uh, she brought in her five-week-old baby at the recommendation of her midwife. And she was actively seeking medication for what her midwife said was reflux. Now, the background of that baby, um, the concern was raised because her baby had been irritable, um, which she'd said to her midwives happened after every feed was worse when she was lying flat. 
but the baby didn't have any vomiting. She had some small possets, but no large amount. Um, so I went through my history examination, um, full term, normal vaginal delivery, no perinatal complications, exclusively breastfed, examined really well, uh, both all the observations and the top to toe check was fine. I even plotted the baby's um, head circumference and weight on the growth chart, very pediatric thing to do, um, and made sure that uh, the baby was thriving well. Um, it was interesting that the baby just prior to my um, coming to review it had a, had a breastfeed. And then while I was waiting to see me, did not look unsettled or irritable at all, as is sometimes the case. Um, so with that uh, in the background in this question about gastroesophageal reflux um, in the infant, I, based on past experience, would have considered a trial of ranitidine or meprazole um, and then seeing how the baby progressed with its irritability. Uh, now, I must admit, in my experience as a pediatric registrar, it's a very different setting when you see them at the hospital because they've already gone through perhaps a number of investigations, a number of presentations, and you're kind of um, with a parent who's at the end of their tether and quite tired, as opposed to this, I was seeing the child for the first time in primary care. Um, so the options uh, are different. Um, but you know, based on my previous experience, I thought you know I could start this baby on a meprosol um, or ranitidine, depending on which was the, the flavor of the, the latest guideline. Now, um, back to my experience, as I said, I was um, in rural Victoria. So the guidelines that I um, constantly use are from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Um, so I looked up their guidelines online for gastroesophageal reflux, um, mostly because I wondered you know, which one would I use, meprosol, ranitidine, what dose would I give? Um, but as I was reading through the guidelines, I found a new section there that I had not seen there before. Um, and to describe it, it says the empiric use of acid suppression for unsettled infants is not effective and may cause harm. Now, studies have indicated that PPI therapy may lead to an increased risk of community-acquired pneumonia, gastroenteritis, future fracture, fracture risk, micronutrient deficiencies, and that there is no evidence to support empiric use of acid suppressant therapy as a diagnostic trial for irritable infants. Now, I thought, hang on, this is very different. Underneath that section, um, the Royal Children's Guidelines gives a nice little flow chart that after excluding things like failure to thrive and red flags and complications of reflux, then if the infant was irritable, the management was still conservative, reassurance, parental support, and education. Uh, even if you were to follow the flow chart down to the point where um, you were going to give a trial of omeprazole, before you do that, they actually recommend a two-week exclusion trial uh, for cow's milk protein intolerance before thinking about a trial of four weeks of omeprazole. Um, so this was a big game changer for me, and I was quite shocked that the current practice had changed. Um, and two points, first one, that I didn't know that it had changed, and two, the degree um, that, that I was previously doing this management and had been doing it for a long time, now I realized it was potentially quite harmful. Uh, of course, I double-checked a few things first, like how could I have missed this guideline change? Uh, and I looked at the end of the Royal Children's Guideline that said that it was in October 2019, and I was just finishing up my regular uh, pediatric registrar job then. So it kind of came in as I was coming out of pediatrics. 
And although I had done a few locum peds reg jobs after that, I had not come across that. Um, and then I looked back at the local guidelines from the Starship Children's uh, Hospital guidelines. And in their, um, their guidelines under acid reducing agents, they did make a brief note as they usually do that it's ineffective in gastroesophageal reflux infancy, but is helpful in treating esophagitis. Uh, and then it goes on to give the dosages of meprazole and ranitidine. But there was no mention at all of the potential harm in giving PPIs that was on the RCH guidelines. Looking into the references used in the RCH guidelines from 2019, uh, that was when they were published. Um, there was a new study in July of 2019, a cohort study done in the United States that showed um, PPI usage in infancy increases the risk of childhood fracture, particularly the earlier the infant is started on the PPI and the duration they were on it for. So it was quite an up-to-date um, publication, the RCH guideline compared to the Starship guideline which when I looked at it is actually from 2011, 2012, although it does have a, um, a comment at the bottom of the Starship guideline that they should review it every two years. Um, obviously it hadn't been reviewed since at least, you know, the last 10 years almost. Yeah, that's interesting because I'd had a quick look at the BPAC pages and they're about 10 years ago that they were saying that their page was, was last updated and um, guidelines are by their very name they're meant to be guides they're not meant to necessarily uh, you know, they're meant to guide our treatment they're not meant to tell you exactly how to practice and you've got to take many things into account with that but I think what was interesting about what you said there is that it was the fact that you looked it up which made you realize this new change had happened and that was something I was making in that December podcast that point of if you don't check, then you. How else do you know that there isn't something that's that's um, that's new? And it would seem that Starship has been now ten years since they last changed it. So you could fall into a a, a kind of um, fall into the pattern of assuming that things haven't changed, so they never will change. But that, that that's why I'm keen to kind of encourage people to not fear just quickly checking and, and reinforcing your knowledge, making sure things haven't changed or, or just refreshing in those more, those rarer presentations. Um, and as you said, it was really because you left Melbourne at the time that the, the guidelines changed. So maybe if you'd been working in a pediatric hospital at that point, you'd have had a memo go around and you'd have, you'd have picked it up. But um, despite your experience in pediatrics, you this had sort of passed by your radar and then when you looked into it you found that actually it's potentially uh, whilst we might feel in urgent care like we want to do something we might actually be doing more harm than good in having this trial so what did you end up doing with this child how did you approach with this new information did it change the way that you manage the, this particular condition now oh yes and I absolutely changed my, my practice based on this. Um, in the end, I reassured the mother, um, provided her with an information sheet on reflux. And the Royal Children's Hospital has a good section of parent info sheets um, and recommended some simple measures like um, comforting irritable babies. They had a handout on that as well. Um, keeping the baby upright after feeds for 20 to 30 minutes to see if that helps. Uh, and I advised mum to follow up with her midwife uh, and with her GP. The G, um, GP had an appointment next week because it had the six-week checkup coming up. 
I knew the midwife was going to follow up and, and check how mum are doing. So then I explained to the mum why I wasn't starting PPI therapy, specifically because that's why the midwife sent the mum to me, saying that there was new uh, research saying that it increased risk of fracture, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, um, so that she understood the reasons behind why I was doing what I was doing uh, and giving her the handouts and you know, getting her to follow up. Um, so that's a, a huge change for me based on um, based on my previous practice. And uh, like you said, um, I was quite shocked that the practice that I was doing could potentially be quite harmful. And you know that old adage, um, what is it, primum non nocere, that Latin of uh, first do no harm kind of thing. I realized, oh, gee, let's let's not jump in here. Let's not start the PPI therapy. Uh, and in fact, if if we were looking at it, we wouldn't even do that as a first off. We would look at maybe a cow's milk um, a removal diet from mum for a couple of weeks before even doing that. And there's a good uh, flow chart upon which uh, first, uh, sorry, primary care givers um, should should follow in terms of what should you do first before you jump onto meprazole and, and possibly call all these sides, cause all these side effects. And you've um, con contacted Starship, haven't you, in terms of asking for feedback because that, as you've mentioned, their guideline differs slightly to to Melbourne. Although Melbourne is is certainly a a website I use a lot for for guidelines. I think it's very appropriate for New Zealand practice. Really, um, the population of of Melbourne is very similar to um, to a, to. A, uh, the Auckland kind of Starship hospital guidelines. I think we we, we don't have to uh, be worried about using Melbourne as in in that regard. But um, but there is a difference between the two, and you and you've contacted them, but you haven't heard anything back yet. But you, correct. But it does seem that they are behind in their in their updating of it, and perhaps COVID has put a, a bit of gum in the in the wheels of uh, of that sort of process. So it'll be interesting for people to keep an eye on this. And as we mentioned, if you keep checking, suddenly you see things change. And I mentioned the C word there, I mentioned COVID, and we've all experienced the frequent changes in, in processes that happen there. So we're very used to looking on a weekly basis or even a daily basis on changes uh, regarding COVID management and testing and tracking and, and treating and, and whatever. But um, on something like LOSEC and ranitidine for reflux, it is possible to fall back into in, into old ways and would you say in your 10 11 years of pediatric experience you had changed your treatment in that regard had changed at all or had you had it been the same the whole way through um prior to this i mean this this is a very big change um and prior to this when melbourne uh, were changing their guidelines on anything it would kind of filter through the pediatric network um for example, their grand rounds would let us know if there was a change to the RCH guidelines, um, particularly something of, of this magnitude. So I think it has changed um, my practice and significant pediatric practice on this. Uh, on the Starship feedback, at the bottom of each of their guidelines, there is a, a little uh, box we can sign in, check in your email and just mention a comment. So if you do think something is, uh, is overdue for review, it would be worth doing that. So, that, so I did that feedback for the gastroesophageal reflux um, guideline on Starship and mentioned the, the changes in um, the guidelines from RCH to see if they would just um, cause a change. But like you said, it's COVID time now. Uh, peak is, is rising. So I, I don't 
expect a, a rapid response from that. It was only a recent um, uh, a recent post that I put in giving them this feedback. I think what's interesting in the case that, that you had there is you gathered information, you 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 um, had a, a look at the guidelines, you you then had a discussion with the with mum and explained things and and reassured her that the baby was doing okay in other regards and and then ensured follow-up with the GP so you actually provided a lot of treatment within that consultation even though you didn't provide what some people might regard as treatment which is a prescription you actually did a lot for that patient and so I guess that's the one important take-home from these sorts of consultations are that sometimes the pressure to prescribe in urgent care might be you might feel that pressure when in actual fact treatment can involve reassurance taking a, a, a full history not feeling rushed and at the moment it can be very busy so you might feel the pressure to be rushed but taking the time to explain to a patient this is um this is what I think is going on. This is how we're going to manage this. And then safety netting with a GP follow-up. And, and you mentioned patient advice. You gave a take-home leaflet as well. So you really touched on all the things that meant that you treated this this child. You just didn't reach for a prescription pad, which I think some people do feel pressured towards. And as an, you're now a, a GP, excuse me, misspeaking, as you are now an urgent care registrar, how have you noticed the difference between working out in the community and working in a hospital as a, as a paediatrician? Do you, do you have an, a, a, a different feeling of expectations from patients? Do you feel a different pressure in terms of how you manage patients, the speed at which you manage patients or the, the, the um, expectation to treat? Uh, have you noticed any, any difference that you can um, kind of touch on? Yes, I, I do find that you... The communication skills are slightly different in the hospital compared to out in the community. Um, having just done the communication skills course through the college, um, they have that ICE um, acronym, uh, what, what the patient's ideas are, what their concerns are, what their expectations are. And I think that's quite handy to keep in mind, um, especially with this mum. She, um, she thought her baby had reflux. That's what her midwife had told her. She was concerned that baby was quite unwell because it was irritable and she expected this medication to be able to engage with her and actually move her against that um, with, with you know, simple phrases like, I can see you're concerned. I can see you're worried about this. Um, and then so on the other hand, your baby is growing well. You can see this in, in the growth chart and the records. Uh, they examine really well. And so, uh, and then addressing her expectations for medication by saying, look, I've, I've got this research here and it says it could be quite harmful. I would recommend you follow up with your GP. We've already got a plan for follow-up. So yeah, I think safety netting is a, is a bigger feature now um, in the community than it is for in the hospital where you've always got the, the um, uh, you've always got the choice or the option to admit the patient if you um, if you think it, it needs to be done or you're worried about the parents um, not, not understanding you or that you're not getting the message through. If you have the beds, of course, you can, you can admit them, um, do some observation, do some reassurance that way, which you don't have that option in the community. Uh, and you often have time pressures more in the community uh, that you only have a certain time for a consult, but actually taking the time to address those issues 
um, what their concerns are and their expectations, I think was quite helpful in this case. Yeah, I'm a big believer in time being not just specific to the consult you're currently in. So if you take five minutes extra with a patient, you might immediately think, oh, that's five minutes extra than needed today. But if you factor it into maybe the fact that that person doesn't come back the next day because they had a fully explained consultation and they knew what to do if things changed, then you've saved your colleague 15, 20 minutes the following day. And so we have this um, this kind of expectation that time is, is about the present, but actually you've got to think of the, the consultation for this condition over a period of time. And therefore, five minutes an hour can save you a lot of time later. And ultimately, in this case, if the child didn't end up on this medicine and then thrived and, 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 and didn't, and didn't um, need the medication, then, then that extra time has, has really helped. And doing them... Uh, a prescription on the day would not have been in their best interest. Um, I'd be interested to know if when you were receiving calls from the from the community um, when you were in hospital, if a, a primary care um, doctor, so urgent care or ED general practice called you and said, hey, I'm, I've got this, this lady here, the midwife thinks her baby needs... Um, Losec or ranitidine. I'm not so sure. I've just had a look at the guidelines. Can you just uh, can you just kind of clarify things for me? Would that be a common call that you might receive? And and is it something that that you know specialists in within the hospital would frown upon? Yeah, absolutely. We'd get that all the time, particularly from um, ED staff, where there's high uh, rate of changeover or people who are more. Um, more accustomed to dealing with adult patients, not, not necessarily seeing that many infants. Uh, and so we'd accept a number of those referrals and we'd be, always be very happy to come and, and see them talk through the problems and especially reassure parents uh, and make sure that nothing was missed in terms of red flags. It, it would be quite common to, to get a call like that and accept it and review the case on its own merits. Um, a bit different when it's winter time and perhaps during COVID pandemic, um, but no, we'd, we'd always take that time and use it both as an education point for the parents, but also for the, the staff that was involved as well. So that they felt confident in doing the same thing next time, or if they picked up any red flags, um, doing uh, more referrals when, when it was needed and when it was appropriate. Yeah, the, in many ways, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And if you ask the question and you get an answer back, then particularly as a, as, a, as a junior doctor, but to be honest, it, it can be any age doctor, you ask the question, you get that information back. The next patient you see, you will be able to manage them differently and without the need for a call. And so a call to a specialist for a little bit of clarification or a little bit of advice should be seen as an educational opportunity for, for you as a clinician, um, as well as obviously achieving the best outcome for your patient. And so... Um, yeah, we shouldn't be fearful of clarifying these things if needed. Um, and sometimes if it's a non-urgent thing, it can be done via um, some of the, the referral systems now have the ability to send just a, a query for advice rather than a referral letter. You um, So it gets triaged the next day by a specialist and it's just, hey, a bit of question here. And I've done that um, in the past for when 
asking hematology for advice when it's not an acute thing but a blood film comes back and it's got a comment on it and you just want to make sure you've squared off all the results before you file it away and um and, and so there's lots of different ways in which we can just double check things and i think the interesting thing that you raising this case to me was in the same way as the brewery had passed me by um once you're then aware of it obviously you then should make a point to refresh your knowledge and 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 review that and in the looking stuff up it's the fact that learning is an ongoing process and we shouldn't fear looking stuff up even if we think we know the answer it's worth checking it because every now and then you can be like oh i remember just a fairly um off the top of my head thought here but the bpac antibiotic guidelines used to always list trimethoprim as the first line for uti and then one day it suddenly changed to nitrofurantoin and and that's like cool but i hadn't for whatever reason got the memo got the email got the you know i'd missed the, the flag and, and 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 that happens you can't read everything and you can't see everything but um i just thought oh, i'll just double check and sure enough oh it's it's changed now and and so um it's always worth having a little check just to just to to um, clarify things and um has this happened to you in any other way that you can think of or is it is it now <laughs> that that exact case actually because i am um, i you know registrar and urgent care treating urinary tract infections in adults different to children so i'd look up the guidelines and i'd noticed that it was nitrofurin so on. i actually brought it up with my supervisor at the time and pointed it out and he said no no it's trimethoprim no no it's nitrofurin and so on so then brought it up and and then we looked through the guidelines together and compared it and he said yes the latest guidelines have changed to nitrofurin so on first line uh, and then we also looked up the dates of when uh, the previous guidelines were and he said yep it's it's a later later change in antibiotics so things happen so quickly and it would be quite helpful if um if these guidelines had a like a version change um like they do at the at the top of some programs when you get a, a computer program hmm. and it's like oh here's an update and version 2.1 has this and and we've fixed this and done this and done that it would be it would be helpful i think in, in guidelines if there was if there was something like that you could just click on and say okay so now we've added this and we've changed this antibiotic and we've got this new flow chart in place it would be quite helpful and i think it's something certainly whenever i encounter medical students the the phrase i often get or the, or the comment I often get would be something along the lines of, we covered this in third year or fourth year. And I understand, having gone through medical school, that you do like to tick things off as you go through and you go, right, yep, so we did we did paediatrics then, we did ED then, you sort of tick it off and you go through it and you learn it and you qualify. But actually, the, the whole point of medicine is that it's a continuing learning uh, process. You you forget as you forget way more than you ever learn and um in a specialty as broad as urgent care we've got to kind of maintain that and i and i love the phrase um epistemic humility because it's about knowing what you don't know and being and recognizing when you when you when you've reached that that point that you don't know something um and it's important to not feel that that's in somehow reflective of your capabilities or your intelligence or your IQ or whatever whatever you want to feel um, that, that this somehow is is making a comment on what it a, a good practitioner a good clinician shouldn't feel bad about checking their knowledge re refreshing things and if it's exactly what you thought 
then great. If it's changed slightly, then you're very glad that you did it. But the you can't say, well, back in um, 1998, I learned that in all cases of this, you do this. Um, otherwise, you'd have doctors still treating people with morphine, aspirin, and bed rest for acute MIs. You yeah. know, so it, yeah. which is obviously a, a you know that's a, a kind of a, a well, slightly... particularly being a a trainee in um, it's kind of the later point of my professional career and in a different field than what I was trained or brought up on. Um, I do get that humility. You need to ask questions and mm. and constantly being being questioned questioning what you thought you knew um like in this case in the field of pediatrics which i thought i knew really well and then well it keeps on changing everything keeps on changing mm. and um so you've got to you've got to be quite humble and and open and, and questioning uh, both your colleagues and questioning your own knowledge um, and what you thought you knew may may have changed in the in the last year or two and um, it happened so quickly and like you said with the covid situation almost daily if not weekly um you're following a certain guideline and now you've got to fill in a different form now and oh i it is a tough time <laughs> yep and i think it's yeah there are people who are specialists in their field and so they know an awful lot about that particular thing but i always remember a um uh, it was a while back before i started med school there was a, um, a they're, they're both still alive but they were on television a lot um, there was a GP who turned into a, a, a sort of um, a comedian slash TV presenter kind of media personality, still works as a GP. And there was um, Professor Robert Winston, who's a famous fertility um, specialist and, and obs and gynae um, expert who were on this roundtable discussion in a television program and talking about the knowledge that um, medical students should have. And... Um, I remember the, the the professor took this kind of very much an, an austere approach that you should know everything and doctors are this pinnacle of knowledge and the bastion of, of healthcare, etc. And this GP turned to him and said, "Can you name me the the bones of the wrist, please?" And he's like, "Well, that's not my that's not my specialty." And he goes, "Ah, oh, well, like," uh, and then he goes, "Tell me the um, five branches of the uh, facial nerve." And then he, he proceeded to, to mention an, um, a little acronym that he remembered it by. And he goes, you see, as a GP, I have to know this stuff, but I will defer to you in fertility and gynecology management. So um, that, I remember, making made me realize that even somebody who you looked up to, like Professor Robert Winston, um, had areas of medicine they didn't know anything about. And I, and I am grateful I know the bones of the wrist, but I'm, I would... Um, similar to that GP I would defer knowledge of gynecology to him so um, I do think that we you have to know know your strengths and know your weaknesses and and um, the way that you um, look things up is not reflective of your knowledge it's actually just reinforcing it's it's kind of like going to the gym if you can lift you know x number of kilos you need to keep going to the gym to maintain lifting that number of kilos. It doesn't mean you get to that and you go, oh, forever more, I'm going to be able to lift this number of kilos. So looking stuff up and just reviewing stuff and doing CPD is our brains going to the gym. And and so, um, yeah, I think that's the best attitude to have, whether you're training, whether you're a specialist and, and or, or anywhere in between. And just from a personal point of view, I find uh, um, being involved with medical students or, or, or 
trainees or nurse practitioners or anybody with a who has a question then um it's the nothing makes you refresh and learn something more than knowing that somebody's asking you that question and you go and you make damn sure you know you know the answer so it actually really helps you to refresh that knowledge so it's kind of um it's always worth getting involved with helping teach people because nothing makes you want to refresh that knowledge better but um yeah do you I have anything else your to... um your open, sorry your opening um statement in the looking stuff up consultation i think you um you grabbed my attention at that one because they, you said do you expect to get 100 percent on every exam that you do do you expect to mm. know everything about you know about everything so looking stuff up is actually um quite helpful and like you said it's not a reflection on um on your knowledge or your intelligence or your practice it's just that there's so much to know that um, you have to accept that you don't know it all and things change so fast that you need to keep up to date. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I specifically mentioned the ACLS thing where you had to get 80%. And I remember um, the last one I did, you scratched off a little foil thing. And so it showed you whether you got the answer right or wrong. So it wasn't a case of handing it in and waiting for the results. You you could count up and work out if you'd got 80%. And so you were sort of like, I, I know I can only get this number wrong. And every time you scratched off and got an X, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> and then yeah, then I kind of thought... pretty well, brutal, actually. <laughs> but each X I was scratching off, I would think, oh, no, I don't know that. <laughs> Which would mean in a recess situation, I would, I would get that wrong. And yet they don't set the mark at 100%. And... Um, and yeah, so it is an interesting um, notion that if we did have to know everything, we would have to get 100%. And it is, yeah, I think that's um, a good way of looking at things. And the only way you can then fill that gap in is to use what we have available. Unfortunately, when you're at work, you've got your computer hooked up to Google. Um, there are still books and guidelines hanging around. And we've mentioned here, Starship guidelines are great. Um, Melbourne Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne guidelines are great. BPAC we've mentioned are great. Um, so there's many resources out there that we can and should use. You've mentioned you've asked your supervisor. So you've got colleagues you can ask for help. Um, you know, if you've got a wound problem, we ask our nurses because they know way more about wounds than us. Um, so it, it's a we've got so many people out there. It would be arrogant of us to assume that we knew everything and you're just teeing yourself up for a problem and um yeah so i think looking stuff up and just being aware that you don't know everything is is quite comfortable to be in that position and uh well, once you've made that acknowledgement you i think it helps <laughs> you don't have to feel perfect yes i mean uh sometimes these days you get patients that come in with um they've googled their own disease and they've, they've come in with a diagnosis and so if you haven't looked it up maybe your patient already has and you've got yes, to convince yes. them that it is or it isn't or and you've got to convince them of what the plan should be going ahead so yeah, yeah. if you haven't looked it up they might have already <laughs> or you get the patient who comes in and says i've got so and so there are only 10 people in new zealand who have it and you're like oh great <laughs> Yes, of course. I, I I automatically know that because I know every rare genetic disease that there ever was. Um, yeah, and they've already Googled their um their management, so they're already asking you about a specific antifungal medication or ivermectin or something. Mm, mm. Well, and I think I mentioned it in that that other podcast. I always look up interactions when someone's on something, um, because I'm always surprised at the number of times. That it uh, 
that it shows up that there is an interaction or um, I, I also check the poison's information no matter what somebody's ingested um, because I once had a case where somebody had ingested um, like a, a, a cold remedy, like a topical cold remedy, you know, that you smear on and it, like menthol kind of thing. And um, and I just assumed, well, it's just a topical thing. What harm is it? And actually there's stuff in there that can that can make you quite unwell and uh, and people need observing. And so if I'd have assumed that, oh, it'll be fine, <laughs> when I actually checked the data, I'm like, oh, no, that's actually got some stuff in that, you know, it, it sounds very natural, but it but it can actually be worth observing. The person was fine, but the but they still warranted some observing. So... Yeah, looking stuff up is always you're always happier when you've done it, and um, and I, and I've always liked the idea of um, things like checklists. Um, another a couple of podcasts I've talked about actually is aviation, and and I do like the way that no matter what a pilot their experience level is, the plane takes off having gone through a number of departure checklists, and they land using similar checklists. So forget about emergencies. They do this when they're doing routine stuff that they know how to do. They know how to take off the plane. They do it all the time. And yet they always have to go through the same checklist. And the reason is you miss things if you just do it by rote. And this is a way of making sure they don't miss things. And and so if you just have a habit of checking things, you don't miss things. So, um, yeah, so thank you for responding. I would like people to feel that they can call... Oh, email the podcast and and then um, kind of come up with ideas of things to talk about because um, I didn't find this be until you brought it to my attention and so I'm grateful for you doing that and it's nice to be able to have a chat and a back and forward about it because it's helping me reflect on it further and and, and it makes the thing go you know it, it has more value then as a, as a learning thing so um i would encourage people to please follow tim's lead and uh, and and get in touch and and have an idea and we can chat about it did you have anything else you you wanted to uh, bring up after this was, was there anything on your list that you'd that we haven't touched on uh no um probably you you're gonna put in um links i guess to the to the guidelines the rch guideline yeah the, yeah definitely stuff yeah because particularly that sure. flow chart i think yeah, you mentioned so. is very good i think that's that's mm. i like i like a flow chart as, so a, as a means of compressing things <laughs> yeah. um but yeah yeah and sorry just comparing the flow chart compared to the starship one so the starship one was very block points this 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 and it's really hard to flow through but when you use the chart you see ah so this is actually um it, it helps prioritize what things you should be working through first both in in your assessment and, and also in your management so we're worried about failure to thrive first and then we're worried about this and so the treatment should be you know cow's milk protein tolerance trial exclusion diet first and then um trial omeprazole after that but then once you you put that into into thought and you're like well Hang on, I'm not going to be the one in urgent care who's going to be you know, reviewing exclusion diet in two weeks or omeprazole for four weeks. So this you know, feeding that back into the GP is quite important, I thought. Yeah, those those tables are very helpful because you know, as a pediatrician, you are seeing kids all the time. As a cardiologist, you're seeing hearts all the time. But you've went from this consultation to a foreign body in the eye, to a broken wrist, to a COVID 
case to appendicitis to urinary infection to you know someone having chest pain you know it it, it you just bounce between so many things and that, and it may be quite a while before you come back to seeing a, a kid like this again and so um yeah, yeah it, it, it's um yeah it, i like those quick reference uh, tables like that then and flow charts that are that are really useful and and you can just find immediately where you are on this on this journey and as i say i think the, the key take home from this was uh, looking stuff up is fine um, and, and should be encouraged be aware that things change but one in your consultation i think what you did that was fantastic was you went through with the patient or with the mum you gave her the options you showed her the the uh, guidelines and you reassured her you took the time to to make sure that it was a useful consultation and you ensured that she had take-home information and gp follow-up so just a, a really good consultation you didn't just go oh midwife said low sec there you go script and out the door you'd have been on to your next patient maybe 15 20 minutes earlier but you you had a much better uh, consultation doing it the way that you that you did it so um thank you tim for bringing this to our attention and, and coming on today to chat about it and you're welcome back anytime if you have any further revelations or, or ideas and as i say anybody out there listening follow tim's lead email and come and come and chat about things because um yeah i'd like to talk to more people about things they encounter in their day-to-day -day life so thank you tim good luck with the rest of your training and um Thanks. Uh, we'll see you around. Yeah, see you Thursday. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I should point out, Tim and I work in the same clinic. So it's, <laughs> but um, that aside, it, you don't have to work with me to email me to come on the podcast. So the challenge is set. To anybody out there, please email, come on the podcast. Cool. Cheers, Tim. Thanks, Kurt.